If you're a guest with us, we're thrilled that you joined us this morning. And of course, we've been in the study, if you've not been with us, of the Gospel of Luke. And so if you've not already turned there, take your Bibles and look with me at Luke chapter 15. I said to you last time that if you, if you were to miss everything else in this parable of the prodigal son, you should not miss the ultimate point that Jesus makes is that we are all prodigals, all of us, and God has been merciful. In fact, what God loves is the softening of a prodigal heart. These parables were intended, of course, that he, he strung them together so that he could drive home the emphasis of the heart of God in salvation. God doesn't have to save sinners, shouldn't save prodigals. Prodigals deserve nothing. We deserve nothing. And yet God loves to rescue prodigals. He loves it. If you missed every other point of these parables, of which there are many, particularly this one, you shouldn't miss that reality. But as you study these parables, particularly, again, the parable of the prodigal son, you, you're reminded of how you came and from what you came. If you're here and you love Jesus Christ today and you're saved, you were brought to the end of yourself at some point, whatever your background. In your prodigal life, God softened you using circumstances to do so. One of the great lessons as you look back on your prodigal life is that sin never really fulfilled its promise, did it? Sin never makes good on what it boasts. It is, as the Apostle Paul said in Galatians chapter 6, you remember when he was writing to the straying churches, he made this statement, don't be deceived, Galatians 6 verse 7, God isn't mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also what? reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That's true. It's a principle written into the fabric of human life and the fabric of God's moral universe. Whatever you sow, that you will reap. We used to tell our kids that all the time. Listen, you, you may want to get out from underneath all that you're being given. And as your desires become industrial strength, you may want to shed the the, the things you see as chains, but whatever you sow, that you're going to reap. Every time you think about your existence before Christ, whatever it was like, you know that. You know that whatever you pursued, whether it was self-righteousness, whether it was false religion, whether it was worldliness, profligacy, whatever kind of life from which God drew you, pulled you, and delivered you, you know as you look back on it, sin never fulfilled what it boasts. And that is, of course, what we see in this parable. It is like the others. Now, Jesus, of course, is on the backside making a particular point to some in the crowd, namely the Pharisees and scribes, because the Pharisees and scribes had already considered themselves more righteous than the rest of the rabble in the crowd. They considered themselves law keepers, keeping the Old Testament law, and because they adhered to the externals, imagined themselves acceptable to God on their own. So when they looked at people, particularly sinners in the crowd, they saw themselves as above them, better than them, worthy of God's eye, when the rest of the crowd was not worthy of any of it, not even their own attention. And so they saw Jesus' ministry, and he was 
always speaking to the needy. He was always giving himself over in sacrificial love to those who were desperate. Always the broken life Jesus was around. Why? Because Jesus had said on occasion things like, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And so he spent time with the spiritually sick. And the Pharisees didn't like it. They were agitated, sometimes mocked him for it. And they basically used it as proof that he's not who he says he is. You hang around with defiled people, you must be defiled. You're not who you say you are. We, on the other hand, stay away from that kind of crowd. And Jesus' message to them was, then how in the world does the gospel of grace get out? How does it get to anyone if you aren't handing out grace? You're just a bucket taking all that God gives and you don't funnel it to anybody else because you're self-righteous. How does that happen, gentlemen? That didn't soften their heart. So he had to tell some parables to make the point. Look, the heart of God is opposite of what your heart is. Your heart is we're good enough and, and God is merciful only to those who help themselves and get themselves to a particular level where they're worthy of his eye. Listen, Jesus says to them, that is not who God is. You don't understand God. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. You must come to God on his terms, and God will save. He loves to save sinners. He rejoices when one sinner is repentant, Jesus said in the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus goes after, God goes after the valuable coin. Why? Because the rescue of sinners is precious to him, he said in the next parable. And in this parable, the one we've been studying of the prodigal, he is unfolding that same point. But here he does it in a very unique way. And we get to the point of the parable here where we see that sin never does, in fact, satisfy. Now, just to sort of get on the pathway, if you've not been with us, this younger son made a very offensive demand or request of his father as the parable goes. He asked for his share of the estate that was never given while a father was alive, let alone a healthy father. This would have been highly offensive. He had no right to ask for it. He was basically sending the message, according to the parable, I want you gone, Dad. I want you gone so I can have what I want, and I want full control over all of it. And I want it in the form of spendable cash, so the parable indicates that he did. He has no interest in staying connected to the family. He's abandoning his roots. If he gets full control given to him, while the father is still alive, if some buyer comes and helps him liquidate into cash and takes that property, it's still tied to the estate once the son is gone. There's no real guarantee that the property is left to a buyer. This, this boy wants to sell it off, no connection to the estate, no connection to his older brother, he doesn't even care about the grandkids that will come along because what happened was when you got the inheritance, you worked and labored with the resources handed to you in a way that returned it back to the estate to some degree so that you could help the next generation. There was always a legacy benefit built in to the customs of the day. He didn't want any of that. This was absolutely shocking and reprehensible. When Jesus tells the story, the crowd would have seen this as impertinence beyond impertinence. The community, the village, any other relative in, in the imagery would band together against such an arrogant young man. It's possible that in those communities, because it was customary at times to do sort of a ceremony of dishonor and 
and disavowing sort of a family ban on the person ever stepping foot in the community, ever coming back to the estate or being around family members, it's, it's very possible that in the minds of those hearing this parable, that would have been the expected response. This boy's done for. He will be considered dead to the family. We saw last time, though, that the dad did something that was equally shocking. Notice verse 12, he divided his wealth between them. Despite the arrogant request of his younger son, the father makes the arrangements and he grants the request, so says Jesus as he unfolds the story. So instead of expressing outrage, which would have been expected, instead of severely punishing this insolent fool, that would have been normal, but instead of that, the father divides the estate, gives each son their portion. It's also curious that the older son is silent in the matter. In Jesus' telling of the story in this parable, he leaves it to the, to you to, for you to imagine what's in the heart of the older boy because he's totally silent. You would expect the older sibling to react like you'd expect the father to react. This brother of mine needs to be scandalized and shamed in public. I don't want to be associated with the grief he's brought dad. I don't want to be associated with the grief he's brought on our family, the dishonor brought to the community. No, the firstborn son here is silent in Jesus' story. Wouldn't surprise anyone that he might be content with a little more involvement in controlling the assets while his father's alive. So signing the money over might give his older boy some share in how things are invested. People might even assume as they're hearing the story that this son has some resentment toward his father for giving in to his younger brother. Maybe that's what they're going to see unfold. No, in Jesus' story, as we find out later, this older son is himself anything but humble. He's anything but grateful as a firstborn. In fact, the younger son might be worldly, but there's a sin brewing in the heart of this older brother, which we'll not be able to see today, but it is absolutely far worse than what happens in this prodigal's life. It's also true that the dad does something here unusual, and we can't pass over the shock of it. The crowd hearing the story would expect the complete opposite, as I said. If Jesus were telling the story according to the norm, this would be patriarchal upheaval. This would be a dad out of his mind against the defiant son. He would judge him unfit for the family, some sort of public response that maintains the honor of his dad. Instead, we're left to possibly think, does he lack conviction? Is he a weak father? As the story makes clear later, he's not weak, but at the very least, he's doing something here that's unusual because the Pharisees would never do it. He absorbs the shame. He absorbs the humiliation. He absorbs the insulting request and obvious contempt for the family, obvious contempt for the upbringing. The dad just absorbs it. i tell you, we talked last time about how children growing up in your home, they, they get all this grace and all this kindness. Not a perfect home, not perfect parents. Maybe some of you with, with pretty serious circumstances, but nonetheless, there you were fed. There you were to some degree taken care of you survived or you wouldn't be sitting here. In the common grace of society, the common grace of laws, the common grace of other people bringing compassion or your own home, there you were taking it all in and your parents absorbed 
all of your arrogance and your boasting and your claims that they don't know anything and they don't understand you. Yep, they absorbed it. The implications of this father's response would have been understood. Pharisees in the crowd would have seen it as absolutely absurd. No Jewish father, no father in general would absorb such wickedness from a son. In fact, this could hurt the man's livelihood. In the ancient custom, uh, as the sons would bring resources back to the estate, the older man got older and all that investment came back on his life and those in the family. So he, he could be hurting not only his legacy, but he could be sacrificing some of what would come back to him. If he signs that portion of the estate over and has no control over it for the future and it gets dealt with terribly, this father loses that part of the estate in terms of what it would do to strengthen the legacy handed down. And so there it is. You have a dad absorbing some of this careless blows of an ungrateful, arrogant child, risking, however, the father's own well-being and his life reputation to absorb it. Jesus is going to show us why as the story unfolds. So we've seen the arrogant request. We've seen this father's astonishing response. Now we come to what happens next, and you all know the story. The son's worldly life begins to unfold. The son's worldly life begins to unfold. Verse 13, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. So let's set it in our minds what would be alarmingly clear if you'd been standing in the crowd listening to the parable. Let's set some things in our mind. First of all, Jesus makes it clear that the kid burns his bridges for a mere pittance. He burns bridges for, for the lowest money just to liquidate his properties. That's the implication here. He'd have to sell quickly, so gathering everything together quickly a few days later meant that the property of the estate would have to be sold quickly. Well, look, no self-respecting businessman who wants to purchase that property is going to let it stay connected to somebody else's estate because the dad is still alive. So while the son's been given control, once he's out of town, the deal is off. So the guy, if he's going to buy the kid's property and liquidate it into cash at all, everyone in the crowd knew that would mean he would have to take lowest dollar. He just wants cash. That's all. He just wants cash as fast as he can get it. And so he no doubt, in, by implication, would have to agree to the lowest amount of money. The phrase here indicates that he liquidated assets into the cash quickly, and this is further proof of his contempt for what had been given to him. Isn't that true? You know, you, you work hard for a legacy and an inheritance. Even Solomon, the wisest man on earth, said that you, you earn all this stuff, you work hard on it, and the next generation can squander it into nothing. And that is why it's chasing after wind to rely on earthly things. This boy did the same thing. Why was he rushing to get out of town? Notice, he wanted to go into a distant country. What, what's happening here? As far away from accountability as he can get. In the original language, a far distant place. At the heart of it, he doesn't want accountability. He doesn't want association with his roots. This is, of course, another shameful detail that Jesus gives in the parable. He's already acted in a way 
that brought irreparable shame upon his family and upon his father and upon the extended family and their legacy. But now his motives are far worse. He wants to throw off all restraint and authority, any vestige of his roots, any strings attached. He doesn't even want his family to know where he went. No connection. Some commentaries suggest that Jesus is giving the parable largely to confront the Pharisees, and so it may, it may be that Jesus is intending to speak of a Jewish family with a Jewish son acting like this, which would be reprehensible, and then he's leaving to go in and among heathen nations and Gentiles, away from his religious heritage. How many times has that happened? You bring up your kids and try to give them the truth, try to give them the gospel, and, and they don't want any of it. It's common. The human heart just loves sin. The human heart doesn't always respond to the gospel early in life, if at all. It may be that that's the case here. It may be that Jesus is indicating that. I mean, he's going to, in, a, in the end of our study uh, in Luke 15, he's going to drive home the point that self-righteousness of the Pharisees is different than the heart of God. God loves to save sinners, and they are kept from the gospel because they see themselves as already righteous enough. So it may be. It may be that this boy is to be seen as someone who's going off into pagan nations and away from his own spiritual heritage. So he's burning bridges for a pittance. He's running far from accountability. And notice, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. So now we see that he spends every cent on reckless living. Reckless abandon. It's a term that means to just to throw away or scatter or spread out quickly. We might say it like this in our vernacular. He spent his money like water. He dispersed it like water. He opened the floodgates. And you can envision the picture. He comes into town. He, he goes to where the part of the city is that will supply every vice that he wants to take part in. He flashes his wealth. A crowd starts to gather uh, of, the, of the influential in society that make back backroom deals and the lowest part of society that just want his money. He flashes wealth. He opened the floodgates on his bankroll. Every reckless pleasure that money can buy started coming his way. The story implies that he had enough money to gain privilege access to what he was after, but that he parted with his money quickly. He just let it fly. That perhaps his wasteful manner put him in touch with people who could cheat him. And if drunkenness was going to be involved, which no doubt it would be, then he would have no way of protecting his wealth. It went out like water because he spent it in foolishness and vice, and it went out because people took advantage of him. That would be the implication. Loose living in some of your translations. Riotous living in some of your translations. Jesus never says in the parable exactly what the kid was doing, but if it was reckless and riotous by description, then it would have invoked in the listener's mind a lifestyle that was flat-out worldly and opposite of what he came from. So clearly it would have involved the abuse of whatever substance was of the day, drunkenness being quite popular and warned against, what happens when you are drunk? What happens when you lose your, your sensibilities? Well, your inhibitions are gone. You abandon your inhibitions. 
And so more money is recklessly spent. You've seen people do that. They come in opening their wallet, and the more they become losing of their senses and their inhibitions go down, the more they do foolish things with their money. It's also true that when you're involved in that kind of life, more boasts are made. You boast of great things. He probably sat around by implication boasting of great things he could never make good on and having later on to guarantee his boasts. Look, people in that kind of low-level society will hold you accountable for what you promise when you're drunk. And so that was the implication. Foolish alliances, making friends he shouldn't make, and of course, moral scruples go out the window They're suppressed. Your inhibitions go down when you're involved in the abuse of substances. And while Jesus never gives us the details, it also had to include anti-authority. He wanted no more life of submission. He didn't want the, what he considered to be an oppressed life at home. Isn't that so true of your prodigal life? And it's interesting when you're parenting in those years and your young people are coming to, into adulthood and they're beginning to see what's out there and the lights of Vanity Fair are enticing them and they start to disregard your instruction, you get angry. You get frustrated and then one of your friends reminds you, but wasn't it like that when you were that age? And you grit your teeth because you don't want to admit it. Like, nah, I mean, I wasn't, no, well, yeah, okay. You have to end up admitting it because you know that you were defiant of authority. You saw your home life as oppressive. You didn't like the rules because it was constraining your flesh. Your lusts were industrial strength and there was nothing to satisfy it and your parents kept saying, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, you reap what you sow, be careful, hold it in responsibility, keep it in check. Yeah, that's right. That's how prodigals always are. We push. We don't like authority. This kid had an attitude of defiance, Jesus implies, and he's fueling it and stoking it. Moreover, I don't know if you know this, but the New Testament uses terms like carousing. It's an English word we use all the time, but the the Greek equivalent would be um, loud and reckless. And that's exactly what happens and we're warned against it, and the the list of sins it goes along with is common enough to us in this kind of lifestyle that this kid was living. Romans 13, 13, let us behave properly as people of the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Look at the list, how they go together. We know that life, we know that scene. Carousing, drunkenness, promiscuity, sensuality, anger, jealousy, strife. These are, by the way, the deeds of the flesh, as Paul calls them in Galatians 5, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's what the kid is involved in. Carousing always involves other attitudes and behavior, false worship, mystical spirituality, violent anger, fights, jealousy, envy, debauchery, always. He no doubt, as I said, was also involved in criminal conduct. You get around that kind of people, you get around swindlers and cheats and liars. They'll steal you blind, and that's no doubt what happened. 
Some commentaries have said, well, loose living doesn't mean immoral. Uh, there's, no, there's no reason to believe that he uh, was with prostitutes like his brother accused him of down in verse 30 when, his, when he came home and his brother said, oh, he's wasted his money on prostitutes. Commentators think that the brother was just sour grapes. He didn't get what he wanted. He didn't, he's jealous of his brother and so he's slandering him. Well, really? Are you kidding? The guy goes away from accountability and the only sin he's gonna keep from is immorality? I don't think so. Reckless living is reckless living. It would have been opposite his upbringing. Life at home for him was like it would have been for many of you with somewhat conscientious parents, submissive and sacrificial. Look, you serve each other and you submit to rules. We all have to submit to rules. That was what life at home was for this kid by implication. And now he doesn't want the rules. And he's consuming life for his own ends with no rules. The implication is that life at home for him was respectable and responsible and fiscally careful with honor to the family name and culture and religious life. No, now he's eaten up with the boastful pride of life. I'm my own person. I'm the captain of my own destiny. Get away from me with your oppression and your rules. Look, that is what the young prodigal mind and heart thinks. Absolutely. I think about my prodigal days and the care of my parents after they had come to Christ and the way that my parents tried to pour into me, imperfect as it might have been at home, bottom line was I disregarded all of it. Why? Because it felt like chains to me. I didn't heed the warnings. Life at home for this kid was, by implication, pure careful human relationships, and now he uses them for his own pleasure. Look, that kind of life, the worst kind of people are lurking, always immoral people. And his life at home wasn't filled with inebriation and drunkenness and debauchery, not at all. But now he's determined to inebriate himself because he's got a guilty conscience he wants to numb, and he's setting aside any attempt at appropriate restraint. The kid's behavior is absolutely the worst in terms of worldliness. He's burned all his bridges for next to nothing. He's gone away from accountability. He doesn't want any connection with family. He spent every cent in reckless abandon. And you know from knowing how prodigal living goes that it has an inevitable end. It never delivers on its promise. And you see that here in verse 14. When he'd spent everything, When he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. This is that lifestyle's inevitable end. Notice, first of all, let me just say that sin never says enough. When he had spent everything, it's intended in the story to drive home the point that sin never says enough, ever. James 1.15, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is acted out, it brings death. Sin is not static. Sin is aggressive, and it works in the deadness of our old life, our old appetites. It wants to consume all that is morally good and holy, and it will always carry you further than you ever thought you would go. Sin always promises to fulfill, but it never delivers on that promise. It always ruins a person's life. The wages of sin is not pleasure forever. The wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. Proverbs 13.15, the path of the treacherous is ruin. 
Proverbs 6, verse 27, can a man take fire into his chest and his clothes not be burned? Implication, beloved, is sin never says enough. And the reason it never says enough is because sin blinds as you go. The more you indulge in it, the more it blinds you to its consequences. So it always brings ruin, and we don't consider the consequences. The prodigal doesn't consider how people will follow them in their temptations. They don't consider the lives that will be enslaved because they're enslaved. They don't consider the effects of ignoring the conscience. They spend their livelihood squandering employment. Have you ever seen that? They'll lose a job in the bondage of some sin. They'll lose their families They'll destroy their health and slowly drain away any spiritual spark of the fear of God within them. The big picture implication, if you're standing there listening to this parable, the big picture implication is if someone in the crowd has spiritual ears to hear, Jesus is drawing a spiritual parallel between the profligate son and how every sinner has treated God. Every one of us is a prodigal, we're born prodigals, and as we live and breathe, we consume all that God has graciously given. We demand it. And he's merciful because we should be snuffed out immediately, but as the consequences of our sin begin to come against us, it is intended by God to soften us. It is intended by God to bring us low enough to see our condition, to sort of take the scales off our eyes. Look, next to Jesus were two thieves, and they both were justly condemned, justly experiencing the consequences of their own wickedness, and only one of them, after railing at Jesus for a while, began to see his circumstances rightly, and he told the other one, look, don't you fear God? Here we were railing at this guy. He's done nothing. We're justly being condemned and put to death. Don't you fear God? I mean, we need to think this through. Yeah, his circumstances needed to soften him. Guess what? The other one didn't soften. In the midst of his consequences, God was being patient. God even witnessed to the hard-hearted one by the other one. What a patient God. And listen, if your consequences of your sinful life aren't enough to soften you, God will sometimes bring a providential circumstance targeted to such a degree that it humbles you and brings you to your lowest point so you'll cry out to him. And that's precisely what you see here. Notice, a severe famine occurred in that country. You say, man, what a royal bummer. (laughs) This guy has lost it all. And a famine in the land? One writer said, the famine was not the prodigal's fault, of course, but that's how life is. (laughs) Boy, don't we know it. Man, if the consequences aren't enough, and so far the kid is not repentant in the story, then the Lord may graciously send a natural calamity intended to crush pride. This is a hotshot kid. Showed up in the town, flashed all his money. Suddenly all his money's gone. All his friends are gone. 
His dreams of freedom, oh yeah, freedom from the oppression of the environment at home, freedom from having to respond to authorities, his own person, freedom from obligation to future connections, freedom from having to conform to some moral standard and become a responsible, faithful member of the community. All the freedom from those things, it's not panned out. In fact, it's now exposed for the fraudulent promise that it is, and if that weren't bad enough, the land he lives in has entered a severe famine, Jesus says, so now there's no jobs, no food, no shelter. Now listen, beloved, we live in 21st century American culture. When you read that there was a famine in a parable, you and I do not understand it. Unless you're a history buff, you've not even read about it. Ancient famines and modern or contemporary famines in the last 100 years, 50 years, 10 years, 200 years. But the crowd listening to this parable understood they knew famine. From the time of about 169 B.C. to about 75 A.D., there were about 10 severe famines in and around Jerusalem of a sort that were devastating. And the struggle was understood by the ancient culture. It's why Jesus includes the detail here. We don't get it, but they got it. Whatever the cause, famine always brought the same kinds of devastation. Huge death tolls, massive death tolls, anarchy, widespread, rising violence and crime, treacherous daily life. I mean, you, you could not go a mile down the road to, to get anything because you, your life was in danger. Why? Because in the most severe famines, I mean even contemporary famines, cannibalism was quite common. People ate each other for food. They were driven mad by hunger. It's like you go back into ancient Israel, 2 Kings 6, and you see a famine so terrible that mothers were eating their infants in desperation. The mental instability was rampant. Insanity was rampant. Physical devastation as people ate things desperate for quenching their hunger and it endangered them, things that were not edible. And so as the crowd is listening to Jesus, suddenly they realize, wow, this story is getting worse and worse. The kid has lost it all in his reprehensible life. He deserves nothing. And now a famine? Surely this is the judgment of God? The Pharisees in the crowd would listen to this, and in their smugness, they would say, ah, he's getting what he deserves. He didn't deserve any reaction like the Father gave him anyway. He didn't even deserve the money. Disown him. He's dead to us is the only thing that he should have received, and now he's, it's a famine? Yeah, good. No mercy. Notice the text says he began to be impoverished. So he's jobless, penniless, and he's homeless, and... Uh, He's got nowhere to go and no way to get any food. I understand that. Now he, he's in a land where everybody's holding the small amount they have. Nobody's hiring. No one's giving handouts. There's no rescue mission because everyone needs rescuing. Jesus indicates the kids at the end of the line. You know what? He's not ready to face the music yet. <laughs> you say, what? He's not ready to turn yet? Nope. In fact, the text says that he hired himself out 
to one of the citizens of that country. He finds some person, according to the story, in the community who has an estate still somewhat intact with probably some scrawny pigs, but nonetheless pigs that you hold for the worst part of the famine so that you can have something to eat. The guy's not hiring. You say, how do you know that? Because the verb for he hired himself out is a verb that implies he begged and begged and would not let go of the guy. He clung to him, as we would say, like glue. He found somebody that had an estate, some protection behind the walls, some, something that would perhaps guarantee this kid some scraps, something to satisfy his hunger and keep him somewhat safe from the anarchy outside the walls. And he clung to the guy. He stuck to the guy until the guy gave him something to do. And so Jesus indicates that the man begged, the son begged to take him onto his land and verse 15 says, he sent him into his fields <laughs> to feed the swine. I mean, sin never says enough. An unforeseen calamity adding to the mercy, it's uh, adding to the misery. It's supposed to humble him, and as, as he's supposed to see it as God's mercy, he's jobless, penniless, homeless, begging, and he finds a guy who will take him into his, his estate in the middle of the famine, and he sends him out to live among his pigs, and feed them. It's the worst of the worst. In the mind of the hearers, this wouldn't be a nice green field <laughs> with a pristine oasis of water for the pigs to, you know, and, and a nice clean mud hole if there is such a thing. <laughs> no, this is famine. The fields are full of dead vegetation. No doubt in the minds of the hearers during famine, pig farmers, it, it was the same for them. Their pigs got scrawny. They, they had very little, if any, fresh vegetation. There were no piles of grain to fatten up the pigs, no fresh water, just standing water in a, in a small mud hole. And according to verse 16, the pigs were eating the, the only kind of plant that tends to survive in famines. It's a, it's a carob tree, and the carob pods were hardly edible for pigs because they didn't have much nutritional value. Certainly nothing for humans. They were rather hard and, and somewhat leathery in the, in the pod section. And they threw those to the pigs to keep them alive, but they didn't have much digestive nutrition even for livestock. Very little substance even for the pigs. So the picture in the minds of the hearers is this guy is at the lowest point here. He's living in, in and around the mud hole of the pigs and it's filled with the stench of their waste and it's, there's mud and scraps left over from the garbage probably that gets thrown out there from the main house and some of the hard carob pods to eat. And it says he was longing, verse 16, to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. Yeah, I mean, no nutritional value, but when you're mad with hunger, during famines, people ate anything, bark, pieces of wood, clay. They killed themselves with poisonous things just to fill their stomach with something. These are virtually inedible for humans, but he's longing for a little of it. You say, well, why doesn't he just grab some? Well, first of all, the deliverer who brought the pods to the pigs threw it to the pigs. Notice, no one was giving anything to him. <laughs> He can't even get someone to care for him in the field. He is no different in terms of how he's treated than the pigs. I love this parable because it tells it like it is. 
This parable tells it like it is, a situation where a human heart will not be humbled by the gracious kindness and patience of God who offers them hope and peace. Any human being who tries to rule themselves always finds the same thing. Sin never satisfies. And even you might say, well, it appears from a human standpoint that that some of it satisfied temporarily. Listen, the latter end of your life will still end the same. You might have some earthly goods that people might think, oh, you're still an estate owner even when things are going bad for everybody else. But listen, resources only mask your trouble. They don't fix it. In fact, it is more gracious if God brings you low and you have nothing. That's what James 1, 9 to 11 says. Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in the high position of it. Listen, when God did this, when in the parable a famine was brought, it was a kindness on God's part to bring a proud young man to the end of himself. Money for a while only masked his problem. Earthly resources in our part of the world They temporarily buffer a person from the worst circumstances, but in the end, it's all vain. And sin never says enough, and it always ends in death, physical and eternal. So if your resources mask your truly desperate condition, you are worse off than this kid was because your heart will tend to find some sort of rescue in those things. What do we always say, beloved, if you've been in our church any length of time? Sin always takes you further than you wanted to go, keeps you longer than you wanted to stay, and costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. But God is a merciful God. He wants us to feel not only the consequences of rebellion when we're persistent in it, He's intending by the consequences not to harden, but to soften the sinner. And show us our spiritual condition so that we might cry out to him in desperation. And sometimes he even brings human circumstances and calamities to soften the heart. Sometimes when you see a natural disaster happen and you see people thinking about eternal things, that is a kindness from the Lord. As much as there is human devastation with natural disasters, one day in which the Lord will reverse the curse and there will be no tears anymore and no more natural disasters, for he himself will be king of kings and lord of the earth, and ultimately all that will be reversed. But until then, when you see a natural disaster, it turns people's heart to God because God is using it as a mercy. If they'd never experienced that kind of suffering, they may never think about him. It's a mercy. As much as it devastates us to lose friends, family, and loved ones through these disasters, it is a mercy. Do we not always say that? My wife and I, our first child died. That is how we began to think about our need for Christ. It was the beginning of what would eventually soften us unto conversion. A devastating thing to lose a child, and yet God used it. That's what God wants. Acts 17, 26 and 27, God determines man's course on earth so that they should seek God if they might grope for him and find him. Yes, God wants your circumstances and even natural calamities to soften your heart. We sang about it earlier, Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. With what? Guilt, misery, sin, emptiness, hopelessness. Come to me, Jesus said. I'll give you rest. I'll cleanse your conscience from dead works. I'll give you the power of the Spirit to choose what is right and what will bless your life. 
You will no longer be in bondage to these things. Take my yoke on you. Listen, young people, if you think your home life is a yoke because your parents are trying to hem you in with gospel truth, if you run away from that, you will reap what you sow and regret it. And there will be scars on your spiritual back that were unnecessary. Most of your parents, if they're transparent, will tell you what happened in their life when they did it, and they'll show you their scars to help you. Jesus says, take my yoke on you, for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I'm gentle and humble in heart. God teaches us gently, patiently. What a grace in this kid's life. Rolled into town, living it up, plunging into vice, blows it all, loses it all. He wanted freedom. It only brought bondage. And in his starvation, finally, notice, misery turns to hope. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, wow, that's incredible. Notice what happens. He came to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? You know, it's interesting, a hired servant was treated worse than a slave. If you were part of the indentured property as a slave, you, you were part of the property and a good master of which there were many. You were well taken care of. Your family was well taken care of. You worked the property. You sometimes had privileges. You could rise to the level of, a, of an honored slave, a trustee in the property and take care and manage the household. But not a day wage earner. A day wage earner, the hired servant, Usually, he came in for a day, he got next to nothing for a whole day's wage, and he was not a part of the estate or the property. He wasn't cared for, no insurance. It was, it, he was just a day wage earner. He was the lowest of the low. And this kid begins to think about how his father graciously treats a day wage earner who wasn't really worth anything to typical estates and, and landowners, but he starts to think, you know what? I remember how my father would treat even that class of society, and they had some left over, more than enough bread. What's happening to the kid? You know, my dad wasn't so bad. My dad was gracious. Here the whole time, I thought he was keeping me from fun, keeping me from joy and fulfillment. Does that eerily sound like Adam and Eve in the garden? God says, don't go past this barrier. Oh, Satan says, I think God's keeping you from something. That's always been the lie. The original prodigals bought the lie. Every prodigal buys the lie. Oh, yeah, you're just trying to keep me from what I would otherwise enjoy. You have some sinister design in you. No, the kid comes to his senses and he begins to realize, you know, Life at home wasn't so oppressive. My dad was trying to hem me in and protect me from this. He's starting to realize that's love. What does he say? My dad's hired day wage earners have more than enough bread. They take extra home. He, he's so good to them. And I am starving. I'm on the brink of death. He came to himself. 
literally in the original language, into himself he came. <laughs> he woke up. Look, if you're here today and you have been running from God, I don't care what age you are, God is trying to wake you up. Even being here under this parable should wake you up. He is kind. He is wanting you to come to your senses. What? Consider things as they really are. Be like Asaph in Psalm 73 when he was envying the wicked and he says, I, I was like a beast. I ended up like a cow sitting there in a field without a, without a cogent thought in my brain. That's how I became. I was like an animal. I was envying the wicked, thinking that they were getting away with all this stuff. And when I came back to my senses and thought about things clearly from God's perspective, I realized, oh yeah, they have all this fun here. And then they lose their soul and they go into eternity with nothing. Misery turns to hope when your consequences begin to soften your heart and you begin to see things differently. You look back on what you left, on principles you should have listened to, on a God who's been gracious. You look back on your life and you see the way God's been compassionate and he's been kind and he's let you breathe and how you've railed at him and how you've snubbed him and how you've had people pray for you and you've said nothing. You've gone and consumed life for yourself and how God has let it happen so that you would feel the emptiness of it and turn to Him. Will you come to your senses? Have you come to your senses? We all understand that. Even if you are in Christ today and you love the Lord, it's humbling to look back on our prodigal years, whatever they were. You might have been saved when you were really young. Oh, God is gracious, isn't He? to let smaller, insulated consequences transform and soften you rather than larger consequences that a lot of us hardheads have to go through? Hmm. Some think this kid may have merely looked at things practically and finally decided to make a better choice and go home and see what happens. I don't believe that's what Jesus intends. This isn't some self-help decision. It was sensible, but not sensible merely about earthly consequences, he's coming to himself in the sense that he's looking at his things that he left and the things he was taught, and he's humiliated to the dust. It's all been a lie. It's all been a lie. Now, you would think that a kid like this, watch your heart, you would be tempted to think that a kid like this going home, facing the music, should meet a pretty angry dad who says to him, hired servant? Yeah, maybe down the road. I don't trust you. I don't even like you. I've paid dearly for you leaving home. Your reputation has smeared my reputation. The Pharisees in the crowd not only would they expect it, they would demand it. Absolutely, he gets nothing. What will the Father do? That's for next time.